Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. I'm super excited to have with me this morning on the podcast, Steve Keel. Steve is an experienced barrister working at 48 Shortland Barristers. Steve graduated from the University of Auckland in 1998 with a BA in History, Politics and an LLB with honours. Uh, Steve was admitted in 1999 to the bar. Steve worked as a litigation lawyer with the Auckland office of Chapman Tripp between 2005 and 13. He worked as a litigation lawyer in London, London with uh, Pincent Mason. Have I got that right, Steve? It's been More or less. More or less. Yeah, Pinsent Mason. He became an English qualified solicitor during that time. Steve became a barrister in 2014 and provides legal advice and advocacy for general, civil and commercial disputes. He's got a particular interest in insurance and relationship property. At the end of last year, Steve launched an app called Two Bs. Uh, we'll talk about that app a little bit later in the podcast. Steve's also currently working on developing an online platform so that CPD seminar presenters can leverage off technology to provide webinars on the law and lawyers are able to meet their CPD hours in a more efficient and convenient manner. He's recently published and edited through his publishing company an e-book called Civil Litigation for Non-Lawyers, A Guide to Civil Cases in New Zealand, which was authored by Martin Dillon. Hey, good morning, Steve, and welcome. Good morning, Chris. Yeah, delighted to be here. Good yeah. to see you, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm very well uh, and very impressed by your setup here, I must add. It's not something that uh, your listeners can observe, but I'm uh, presently surrounded by uh, a lot of high-tech kit, and it, it's good. Yeah. S- sitting in a little corner of a set of barristers' chambers, <laughs> yeah, a little recording studio. It's nice. I, I, I see this going very well in the future. Yeah, well, we've been having heaps of fun. We've had some uh, some incredibly interesting and fascinating people on. Last week was quite busy. We knocked over three podcasts in one week, which was a big week for me. Awesome. Um, had a real trans-Tasman flavour. Um, so I had uh, Dr. Matt Collins QC from Melbourne in lockdown. He can't really go very far, so I thought <laughs> I'd grab the opportunity and take advantage. Excellent. And uh, we got him on the podcast talking about defamation, and then uh, we jumped in with a little bit of health law. Uh, well, and actually a bit of health policy with Ron, Ron Patterson, so that was that was right. pretty good. Just to top the end of the week off, we had Craig Aleph with us, and we talked about tax, and I know that sounds like it wouldn't be that exciting, but it was, so oh, sure. yeah, we, could, it was really I could, good. I could dig that. I've done yeah. a couple of tax cases recently, and it's quite yeah. engaging work. What have you been up to? Well, mate, I have been keeping pretty, uh, pretty busy recently. Um, I have my usual legal practice, my kind of nine-to-five mm. job. Uh, as it were, and that keeps me pretty busy, as well as being a dad. Uh, and then I have kind of developed a really strong interest in technology. And as you mentioned in the intro, uh, I have, through my company, The Legal Drive, developed a, a court costs app, uh, 2Bs, uh, and also most recently I've uh, been working with uh, Hamilton Barriston, uh, Martin Dillon, on uh, this book you mentioned, uh, Civil Litigation for Non-Lawyers, which basically feeds into... My, well, and Martin's as well, actually, uh, our joint concern about access to justice in New Zealand. Oh, good. Well, as you know, access to justice is an area that I'm extremely interested in, and I'm 
super looking forward to diving deep into mm. into the book and mm. some of the gems and, and also a bit of the journey for you guys and how you know you've came up with the idea and, sure. and then got to the stage of, of publishing it and, and what people can expect to get out of it. So tell us about your career to date and how you end up going from getting a law degree with honours um, mm-hmm. at, uh, was it Auckland? Where did you study? Yeah, that's right, yeah, Auckland. Was Auckland yeah. At Auckland here. And mm-hmm. uh, then you um, and then you get to the point where you're starting to develop uh, law-based technology and publishing books. But so sure. how did you how did you get here? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question. I could start it in 1974 when uh, Graham and Judy stayed in one evening, uh, but I'm not sure what the rating is for this podcast. I'll skip over that part, and I'll start where I graduated. Was it a, was it a rainy night? It... <laughs> There was a function that they missed, and Graham <laughs> gave Judy that look. And right, yeah. there you go. That miracle occurred. Right. Oh, but, well, you know, it, uh, you know, birds of the bees. Yeah, yeah, but I, I will, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll spare your <laughs> listeners that story, although it is an interesting one. Maybe yeah. I'll pop that in another book. But anyway, yeah. look, mate, I went maybe to... Maybe another podcast. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's probably quite a profitable one. Yeah. But anyway, uh, look, I graduated Auckland in uh, 1990, end of 1998, Received, I thought, a kind of very education there. I think it remains uh, a, a sterling um, law school. I kind of have my own uh, sidebar views about there being possibly too many law schools now, but again, the subject for another podcast, I think. Well, I mean, Auckland is still ranked in the top 100. Certainly. Um, but I think it's our only law school that's ranked in the top 100. Well, yes, and, and yeah, make of that what you will. Yeah. Um, I just want to point out I've got a Master's of Laws degree from the <laughs> University of Melbourne and it's ranked in the top 10. Just Actually, Excellent. it was number eight when I graduated just nice. behind Stanford. Nice. Yeah. Oh, well, kudos, kudos. Um, <laughs> but this podcast is not about me. It's no, about you. Quite, 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 quite. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, back in the olden days, I'm not really sure how they run it now, but the large firms had, you know, the so-called Summer Clark uh, program, um, which, you know, kind of back then seemed very magnificent as a university student. I think my attitude towards that now would be somewhat different now that I'm you know, old old and wise. But anyway, back then I, I became a summer clerk in 19, uh, 1997, the summer of 1997. was offered a job, uh, and the big firms at that stage would proudly tell everyone that uh, all of the people placed in a summer clerkship would be offered full-time jobs when they graduated. Well, that's a good carrot, isn't it? You know, yeah, good incentive. it is. And yeah. the, one of the reasons well, I mentioned that, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case today, or at least not as far as I'm aware. Well, Aki, who uh, uh, helps me out with uh, with this podcast, but has just been given a, a clerking role at Simpson Crescent, so she's going to be spending her summer there, okay. uh, rather than helping me with the podcast, and that's okay, that's how these things roll, but oh. Um, I'll, I'll ask her about it, whether you know, it comes with a guarantee of a job. But the, I guess the other thing which um, uh, some of the firms used to offer, I don't know if they still do, but I think they used to cover um, legal professional studies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they did yeah. They did then. So I'm way out of date with that stuff, and I don't really know anyone who, who's current. But it was the, uh, it was the full package. I, w- I worked there for several years, and that was a very, very positive experience. I got tremendous training there. What, what 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 department were you? Did they place you in so for, the, for their pound of flesh? Yeah, for the pound of flesh. <laughs> um, the, the the litigation team, uh, which interestingly is still to a large extent composed of the same people, John Mackay, Michael Arthur, uh, Matt Sumter, and um, Justin Graham, Edward Scorgi, uh, kind of semi unbelievingly, are uh, still there. <laughs> 
uh, well, that, that, that could be a good or a later. bad thing. Like, I, think, no, I think it is good. They, they <laughs> are they're good guys and good operators. And um, I retain a lot of uh, loyalty, I suppose. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but I mean kind of positive feelings towards the firm in terms of the great training I received there. And interestingly, Chris, I think I can reveal after 20 years, I, I, got, a, I got a kick in the ass. Oh, good. When I was there. Right, right, yeah. right early yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah, right, what did you get a kick in the ass for? Well, I won't go into all of the details. Basically, I um, was a bit badly behaved, uh, and they gave me a written warning. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not, a, not in a, a way in which, you know, our the, the large law firms have been getting a lot of, lot oh, of no, hate recently no. about their behaviour at social functions, no, etc. Not, not, not in that like sort that. of way. No, no. no. I, it's no. not something I ever have encountered. I'm kind of right. slightly relieved to say. Okay. This was more, um, yeah, just, just not doing things when I should have done them kind of uh, repeatedly. But I'll tell you what. Okay, well, what was the lesson that you took out of that? What, did you, what was your take out? Well... This is a very valuable lesson, Chris, because, you know, when you're in your 20s, uh, man or woman, and you think you are all that, mm. right, you really need someone to bring you down to earth and just remind you that you're not only mortal, but you're probably more ordinary than you give yourself credit for. Uh, at that time, I mean, I can't even believe this because I'm fairly strict in my work habits now, but I was going rolling in late I remember in a uh, performance... Rolling late, you know, like 7.30 in the morning. (laughs) 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 After you'd left at at four. (laughs) Yeah, I I wish I was that virtuous. Uh, I think there were occasions where things like that happened, but this is not what I'm thinking of at this precise moment. Um, And I remember being given a uh, performance review document that said, uh, what what, what is your um, uh, best profile within the firm? And I said something flippant like my, my left side or, or whatever. I committed that to oh. writing. I, I, just, I just can't believe it. Now that I work yeah. with young people, and I'm actually fairly uh, fairly strict with them, actually, mm. more disciplinarian than anything else, I just would be gobsmacked <laughs> if one of them did something like that. Now, that is the lesson that I learned then, young and early, and they gave me an opportunity. I'm not saying they're saints or anything, because, you know, it's a, employment is a two-way street. They yeah. gave me an opportunity uh, to mend the errors of my way, and I, I went on to have like a, a continue to have a really positive experience there. To show some humility, you know, just right. you know, so it would right. have been quite humbling for you in a way. It, it, yeah, that's exactly the lesson. And I'm I'm not saying I'm going to ever sit on the Supreme Court or that I'm an extremely good lawyer. I hope I'm a at least a not bad lawyer. But I did, at a personal subjective level, need to learn some humility. Better you learn that at 22. Uh, in in kind of a private, confidential, nice environment with fundamentally nice people who are prepared to guide you than uh, learning it the hard way and basically just getting fired, right? Yeah, well, look, you know, these are some of the gifts that uh, young lawyers can receive if they're uh, in the right environment that, that provides that. And, you know, you were lucky enough that you were. I mean, Chipman Trust's a great firm and, you know, would have provided fantastic technical training, but it's also good to get some life training as well. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, so my, my experience there on the whole was very positive. I worked with uh, John Mackay, who's still a partner there, who's headed up the recent uh, James Hardy trial. Very successful for them. So, yeah, I don't have any inside track on that, but reading the newspapers, that, that certainly <laughs> seems, I mean, it's quite astonishing. Um, but Well, yeah. to have a litigation funder actually declare defeat and surrender. Yeah, um, seemingly. Doesn't yeah. generally happen uh, before uh, first instance trial. 
Yeah, and like I said, I, all I know about is what I've read in the papers, and that all just seems rather, rather galling for all involved. It's a shame, though. I mean, there is a there is a shame aspect to it. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not talking about um, that particular litigation, and that is um, New Zealand generally because we don't have a costs. Um, mm. Should I say? Let me rephrase that again. A class action regime. We're not a regulated one. Um, that you know, we're really trying to work with what we've got, and that makes it very hard to just get a class action off the ground and, sure. and run it through. I mean, I. I really do feel for anyone involved in organising class action in New Zealand. It's a, it's a terrible outcome to have to try and achieve. Um, it's Herculanean in so many ways. Um, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, they're undoubtedly a subject for another discussion uh, another time, but the, the headline you just offered is absolutely right. And I think, um, I imagine all of the lawyers, for all of the parties involved in that case and cases like it are just doing their very best with, what, what they have, and of course it's easy for some people to kind of sit in judgment uh, or purport to sit in judgment later without really un- understanding right. what, hey, what, now, what went on. Yeah, yeah, no, no, completely. Now look, tell me about your interest in insurance. Yeah, well, um, after Chapman Trip, I did a stint with uh, McElroy's, which is one of the you know New Zealand's boutique uh, in insurance firms. I worked with Phil Zapecki there, who's just recently been made up as a district court judge. Yeah, um, look, i just bumped into him the other day. Uh, oh, he nice. was just starting his first uh, jury trial. Oh, right. Okay, kind of, kind of hoping he could get the, uh, the the question trails all right, and that counsel <laughs> wouldn't uh, be too too hard on him. Yeah, well, he was he was a great lawyer, and I'm sure he will make a um, a fine judge. Um, his, his area was maritime, though. You know, that yeah, was, yeah, that's right. Well, bro- yeah. broadly insurance, uh, and I, I think Phil would have called himself a general civil commercial lawyer. We practiced in insurance and had a specialty in, in maritime marine. Yeah, yeah, he once gave me some advice on how to arrest a ship. I could oh, right. Did work out very well, but anyway. Oh, that would be right right <laughs> up his alley. He was involved in a case, uh, the details of which I can't remember now, but it's the only case in New Zealand history that, without any, any irony, and as a matter of literal correctness, began with these words, it was a dark and stormy night. Yes, there you go. It's all right. You, 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 you're going to love a good maritime case that starts that way. So you worked for him uh, for a few years? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And around 2005, London was basically running red hot. Um, times were great. There was a lot of money flowing around. And the city of London uh, was very much and is still kind of the epicentre for finance, international arbitration, uh, the Royal Courts of Justice and the High Court sits there, kind of attracts a lot of interesting litigation. Uh, and there were opportunities for people to work there. So I uh, took, took, took up and, and went over there. And I started working for a firm called Halliwell's. This is pre-Pincent Masons with a very nice guy called uh, Richard Slaven. He's one of these larger-than-life charismatic Factors, uh, uh, chaps. I mean, our, uh, real rainmaker as well. And you get quite a lot of guys like this in, in London, who are kind of just as much about uh, business development as there is technical ability. I was there for a few years, and actually, your listeners will find this interesting. Around t- 2010, 2010, when uh, the effects of the credit crunch were being felt acutely in the UK. So the tail end of uh, the GFC. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I mean, from the point of view of the UK, still sort of in the midst of it, maybe coming out of it. 
not you didn't get that so much in New Zealand. Um, Halliwell's was one of a few firms that actually went into receivership. So it had, and this is all matter of public record. I might add, and it's all all these facts are recorded in a in a judgment actually so I'm not doing anyone a disservice but they had the partners had an, an overdraft of about 20 million just a small quid. one yeah and, <laughs> and uh, a lot of your listeners appreciate that um, a well-run law firm may have an overdraft and may use it occasionally but you wouldn't want to live in it for example it's well not at 20 million <laughs> no certainly not 20 million and and a kind of orthodox uh, the received view is that for a, a large firm along this say the size of the large firms here is they shouldn't really their gross margins are such that they shouldn't really need any credit right they should basically be self-funding so that in itself is quite controversial well how many partners were in that firm by the end oh gosh i can't even remember but maybe just give you some rough context maybe like a hundred yeah okay you know so it's large like top hundred firm Mm. in terms of kind of gross revenue um so with richard uh, I was a part of a team move in 2010 to Vincent Mason's. So they're doing insurance work uh, with um, Halliwell's, working for one client mainly, legal in general, which is really big um, kind of fund management life in general insurance in the UK. doesn't operate internationally, actually. I did a lot. I did their kind of general insurance business, business as usual type stuff uh, in a litigation context. That client followed us, or followed Richard, of whom I was like a lieutenant, right, to, to Pinson Masons, and then worked there until 2013. Right, and you decided to come back to Aotearoa. Yes, well, um, my wife was pregnant with uh, with our child, and we uh, felt felt the call to back to the Tūranga Waiwai mm. in those circumstances. And, Fair enough, um, get fairly back closer to the whanau. Yeah, that's right, fairly common kind of decision. So at that stage, we had resolved um, to remain in the UK, but Poppy came along as... Uh, a little bit of a miracle and and, and some other things, unexpected. Mm. And when that happened, uh, we found um, that you felt the calling to come back, which I felt a bit mixed about, to be honest. But when I hit the ground here, I was kind of resolved to make, a, you know, basically a new life here. Yeah, and you decided to make the transition to the independent bar rather than be in a firm. Yeah, I yeah. did. Um, my wife was pregnant uh, when we came back. Uh, and by the time she came back a little bit earlier than me, I came back when she was about eight months pregnant, and I had not did not have a job lined up. So I called around uh, the people I knew and the very good folks at what were then Jones Fee and what became Fee Langston, basically agreed to help me out <laughs> and said, "Well, you can come and work here for a little while." Another insurance firm. Another insurance firm, yeah. uh, and that, and uh, great, great guys there and I'm a big fan of that firm and oh they're partners. great people they're great they are people. And yeah. good, good good lawyers and and you know a firm is doing something well when um the staff and the partners are friends and and everyone seems to like each other a lot really really great vibe you get from them so and I've always felt uh kind of quite grateful for them subsequent that I actually picked up with McElroy's again who again I think possibly might <laughs> have just taken pity on me because I I needed to carry on working and they uh, being a new dad after all, yeah, something something like that. And I had worked with them uh, earlier, and that hadn't been a complete disaster. So, uh, and coming towards the end of that stint, um, it was really a matter of um, trying to be realistic about what was available. I did find having been out of the market for so long, uh, my international and this is no reflection at all on anyone I've just mentioned. By the way, speaking very generally. I found that um, my international experience in London did not at all translate well 
into kind of any kind of partnership opportunity here. I did not have an established practice. I probably might have had some kind of little reputation when I left in 2005, but that was ancient history, right? It's basically a highly trained senior person, which I sought after, but not necessarily someone you want to be in partnership with. Um, my brother Michael is a barrister uh, doing civil litigation, much the same kind of thing. He's somewhat older than me, so he'd always been in the mix. This is always something I thought I'd rather enjoy doing. And the main attraction for me, Chris, was that it would just give me freedom to create my own legal practice. So after like prodding around the market a little bit to see what opportunities there were with kind of existing firms, um, I then thought, well, fuck it. I'm just going to dive in. Uh, and most of the people who I consulted about it said they didn't think that was a very good idea. I had no practice at all, no clients at all. I had some links through the people that I'd worked with in the last year or a half or so in, in Auckland, but just um, just jumped into the pool and gave it a go. So uh, so despite some people not having any, uh, well, having little faith, <laughs> um, how did it work out? It worked out really well. Um, it was very, and very educational, and, and you will appreciate this as a, uh, someone who's very interested in business and entrepreneurship. Um, I think my technical skills are, are quite good. You know, I think I'm a good lawyer. I, would, I don't go around saying, like I said, that I'll sit on the Supreme Court anytime soon, right? But I kind of resolved to create a legal practice. And I started, mate, just from the ground up. So I started with a table just like this one here, Um which, by the way, isn't a particularly grand <laughs> <No>. table. <laughs> what stands out about your table, Chris, is that it's just a plain table. Uh, and I have a photo of this, actually. I remind what, what? myself a bit. Oh, oh, not of this table. <laughs> no, not of your table. That <laughs> we, would be we creepy. Can we can post that to the website. <laughs> <laughs> that would be creepy if I'd snuck in here. And the only thing I did was, was uh, <coughs> photograph your table to create a gag during a podcast later. No, I have a photograph of a table, a uh, pen and paper, and a computer, obviously, and I, um, I make basically big lists of people to approach, including what I think of still and you will think of as well, I'm sure, like the solicitor network mm. in New Zealand. I mean, don't, I don't mean network in the sense of something being kind of organised, but there are regional firms, small firms around the country that don't have litigation services. I mean, obviously, this is bread and butter for you, mate, but for your listeners who are not so yeah. familiar... Uh, and and most barristers starting out will do something similar. A lot of solicitors are actually quite used to receiving that call from someone who's just gone to the bar. I, I, well, I, look, I'm going to challenge you on that one. Um, Go ahead. So look, I, this is actually just something that I've uh, I've thought about this for 20 years. I'm listening. You know, do most lawyers who make the move to the independent bar as barristers do they start out doing that? I mean, I would have thought mm. most come out of the big firm oh, or come sure. out of firms, right. whether they're the sure. big firms or second tier or wherever, yeah. and, and they'll already have possibly in some instances 30 years of relationships Sure, that, yeah, that'll fair, transition fair with them. Yeah, um, fair Yeah, I, I mean, I think what you're describing mm. is actually probably the exception. I, I would I would go along with it actually, Chris. Yeah, that that's um that's right. New Zealand is actually unique in that respect. We're we're based on the English tradition, where they have a genuinely separate bar and very loosely based. <laughs> very well, I mean, and that's I'd, I'd be interested in doing a deep dive on that. I mean, loosely to perhaps like non-existently. If I mean, we're 
through our eye contact, we realize we're talking about the same thing. <laughs> um, and, and it's actually relevant to what I'm saying. Um, because in, in, in England, the idea of like a solicitor then becoming a barrister off the back of their practice is just anathema. It, it just makes no sense at all. Australia is kind of more close to the states of Australia. Well, particularly Victoria. Sure, um, well, yeah, very no, closely. Yeah, yeah. The, the state of Victoria and New South Wales. New South Wales, just fun fact here, mm. is the most litigious jurisdiction on the planet oh, I like the sound on of a that. per capita basis, really? second only to the great sunny state of California. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to look into that more closely. Yeah. <laughs> um, the states of Australia broadly are kind of more closely linked to, based on the English model where you have a clear division between solicitors and, um, and barristers. And here, New Zealand stands out, I think, is the only only common law jurisdiction I'm aware of where the uh, preponderant uh, tradition would be for folks who have already had a very established solicitor career, maybe in their late 40s, 50s, older, do that as like the second phase of their career. And certainly that is the preponderant practice in New Zealand, I, I dare say. Oh, that's probably opening up a little bit, maybe in the last five years or so. That's not universally true. But certainly at least until 10, 15 years ago, uh, that was the case. And if you look at the, the um, and I'm not saying this disparagingly, I might add, I'm just saying this intending to, to be factually accurate, a lot of the crop at Shortland Chambers and Bankside and indeed Richmond Chambers would meet that criteria. Not not all of them, but a, a, a good oh, number. Well, no, a yeah, good a good high, high percentage. A I good, mean a, a, an identifiable percentage. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, kind of the idea of there being like an independent bar and that situation where you're literally, underlining literally, i.e. non-figuratively, drawing across a solicitor practice is, uh, and this is no reflection on, on anyone, any individual, but laughable. Right. Yeah, yeah, it is. So and, and and look, in, in many regards, um, changes in a in a sphere. I know you don't generally practice in criminal law, but the the changes that went to, through uh, all the reforms involving legal aid in the uh, early two thousands, mm. uh, which have carried on, sure, um, really did bring it to an end. Uh, right. Any chance that right. you could get out of law school, yeah, and, and you could go straight to the independent bar sure. as a criminal. Defence lawyer, that, yeah. that that that's just not a practical option, no. um, and I think anyone who can do that uh, is is super talented if they can pull it off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, it's it's just the way our profession structured here in New Zealand, and, and yes. it's it seems to be the norm. Well, anyway, sure. look, tell, let's move on to you mentioned um, entrepreneurial. Mm. Let's let's move on to the the legal drive. Sure, um, and tell us about. What is it? Yeah, great. Well, Legal Drive is uh, a legal tech and development uh, company that I have founded. Like like many people, I'm trying to see the writing on the wall uh, years in the future where there's a lot of dark matter between me and that wall and, and the language is in Arabic or some other written language that I can't understand. We all have a general sense of things changing and, and impending change we feel it in our bones, and, and no one really is quite sure what form that is going to take. I think most lawyers, most New Zealand lawyers, know in their hearts that the profession is going to be radically different in 10 years, or prob- probably sooner. So part of it, mate, is just uh, raw uh, survival. Uh, I'm a good lawyer, I hope. I have a good legal practice that I really enjoy, and I'm, I'm certainly going to carry on doing that. Um in 10 years, I want to be 
doing something that's gainful, and I'd rather be the guy uh, who's kind of making things and distributing and licensing them than being the recipient or being the the consumer of those services. Okay, I mean, I, what I hear you saying, Steve, is you, you're kind of looking for opportunities that are possibly giving you a bit more satisfaction and purpose than sure. necessarily um, sitting down and helping a client recover a, recover a debt. Sure. Well, I mean, like you, mate, I, I relish legal practice. I mean, I really love it. I'm a lawyer's lawyer. I love the law. I want, if we get together for a drink, I'm... I'm a law nerd. I like to talk about the most recent case. Well, it's still the morning, so we're not drinking <laughs> yeah, at the moment. Well, I, can, I can see that <laughs> thing in your pocket. I'm not quite sure what it is. But um, it does look like a hip flask. But, mm. And that must smell and it must be your aftershave. But, it, but anyway, so, I mean, no, don't get me wrong. I mean, and I love that. And I'm kind of de- devoted to my present crop of uh, clients, a lot of whom have solicitors who I've worked with since, you know, I gave them that cheesy cold call in, in mm. 2014. Uh, and for whose loyalty I'm kind of very grateful, I might add. And in addition to that... But you can um, do both. Sure, well, yeah. yeah you know, sure, that you can sure. have the best of both worlds. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. no reason why um, you have to compartmentalise yourself into a, a fixed box that's where right. all you're doing is processing litigation files. Yeah, that's yeah. right. The, the challenge is time, uh, life, lifestyle, commitment. So I do find that... Uh, things get very busy with the legal practice. Obviously, you will appreciate that, and all of your listeners who are working lawyers will appreciate that. If you're going to do that, you must do it properly. There is no alternative. So when I do that, I do that with full commitment and full focus. And then when I have these lulls, as as you do, like the, the tidal wave comes in, and eventually the tide goes back out again, I can run onto the shore at that point, uh, and get just as much done as I as I can. I also have a few people helping me uh, now and again, um, interns and an employee and uh, a couple of developers. So that forms a kind of informal, slightly anarchic grouping. It's, right. re- it's really important to me, actually, because when I'm doing my barrister work, I'm basically pedaling the bicycle, right? And if I'm not pedaling it, it just falls over on its side. Uh, and the same goes for the tech business, actually. And what that means is when I devote myself to my legal work, all of that tech stuff is basically still rumbling forward, as it were. It absolutely gives me a sense of meaning and purpose. And that is um, terrific. Mate, I just absolutely love it. I mean, it mm. really, intellectually, it really turns me on. Uh, I, I could lose myself for hours in that work. I'm really, really engaged by thinking about... Um, how we all can use technology to uh, practice better. My general bent on it, as a matter of like kind of business mindset, is to try and examine uh, frequent transactions and basically thinking about how I can tax them. So the costs calculation is something that occurs a lot. And we're talking there specifically about the calculation of civil costs and civil proceedings. And, is, and and was this the the idea with 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 two Bs this this website app and you can use it on your phone? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So all right. Well, look, just by way of background, it might be helpful for people listening to understand that here in New Zealand, we do have a cost scale regime, 
but it is somewhat tempered by uh, one rule. It's rule in the High Court rules, 14.1, says that all issues of costs are the discretion of the judge. Sure. Um, that does have a, a tempering effect, but we'll talk about that in a bit more. In Australia, they've got a, a mixture across mm. the states. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. One from, you know, if we look at the great state of South Australia, sure. uh, which uh, I ran an injunction trying to uh, enforce a restraint of trade for a commercial matter there a couple of years ago, they're still doing taxing. You know, you still, you <laughs> the still old taxation it is. Of costs. Yeah, they've got it. Oh got, my word! They have solicitors that specialise in it. Like yeah. they'll work out. Same in England. Yeah, yeah. they'll work yeah. out how many emails you've sent and how many yeah. dollars you get for each email and and all of that. It's it's quite archaic. Well, um, I'm just gonna hit you for anyone who's interested with a couple of kind of factoids off the back yeah. of that. As a matter of interest, there's still a residual discretion here in New Zealand for a registrar of the court to sit down and do a taxation exercise, and I'm aware of one uh, colleague who went through that recently. It's a bit like asking the, I'm doing quote marks here, the sheriff of the high court to execute a writ. They're kind of like, we're not sure who the sheriff is presently. (laughs) Who will do that? Tell us what we need to do. And in England, you have um, whole firms that are dedicated to costs. There's a costs jurisdiction it's a rich source of case law. There are costs judges and costs law firms who address those costs judges on the issue of costs. And it's a completely different mindset. Cost disputes generate a lot of uh, work sure. for, for a small group of lawyers in those jurisdictions. Yeah, yeah. It's a, and, and like I said, it's a whole jurisdiction in itself. And, yeah. and, I, and look, I guess that was one of the areas with the reforms in the, in the 90s uh, of the High Court rules was an attempt to kind of Let's try and make things like costs a bit more predictable. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That's the idea. And I, I come at this from a partly political-philosophical bent, which I kind of like to exercise now. It's my kind of great privilege for you to ask me these questions yeah. and, and to be able to develop kind of um, long-form answers. That is the idea, and that's a noble idea. Uh, and we all could improve, and I'd include myself in this, and actually being just a little bit clearer about costs. Now, a solicitor or a barrister, for that matter, is going to charge the client, say a plaintiff, a certain amount of money. Call that 75000 right? Using something like t- 2Bs, you can model or forecast the costs, make some assumptions, have some variables, a few interlocutories, whatever, thrown in there, and come up with an exact figure in dollars and cents. Say 50000 right? Essential advice to the client at that point, right, is even if they are completely successful, the cost of litigation will be the difference between the cost they are actually charged and the, and the amount they say actually recover, which is $25,000, right? Which, of course, is, is, is commonly clients the first question they ask. Well, sure. Other than, have I got a good case? Sure. Is, how much is this going to cost? See, this is the... I'm getting excited here. I'm jumping out of my chair. This is the information they want to elicit. And the standard response, right, is exactly this. There are rules of court under Rule 14.1 where there's a scale and it's subject to discretion. It's intended to be two-thirds, brackets, a half, brackets less than that, of actual costs. You can expect to recover some. Litigation is expensive and uncertain. Are you up for it? But you mean mean notional, actual, reasonable costs? Right, right. Right, Because I I think the difficulty here is saying two-thirds actual costs really opens it right up. <laughs> well, that, that, um, that is the, um, yeah, I mean, it's bullshit really, isn't it? Yeah. And, and that was kind of the given, well, I mean, that was the intended actual reason back in the day. 
And, um, I mean, it's kind of... As a bit of a compromise, because, I mean, New Zealand, like all of the states of Australia, um, you know, we do have a costs regime where, you know, the general rule is the uh, costs follow the event, the loser pays the winner some costs. Um, of course, in, in America, and in most of the states of America, you, they, there's no cost at all. Oh, right, it it's a matter of constitutionality. Yeah, yeah, they would say it's unconstitutional to require someone to pay costs because mm. otherwise... It would chill my right to sue you. Right? Yeah, I may be less inclined to exercise my rights or exercise my rights to kind of get damages from you if I thought I'm going to get bankrupted from a costs award. Well, actually, there's probably a bit of truth in that. Yeah. You know, from an access to justice point of well, view. Well, I mean, I mean yeah. yeah, and there's many scholarly papers written on that topic, and New Zealand kind of sits in the halfway, which is good. Coming back to the advice that client, that lawyers give advice, it's essential to advise the client in that notional situation I just outlined. That even if they're completely successful, the cost of litigation, a sunk cost, or call it what you will, right, is $25,000. On your example of yep. seventy-five being yeah. reasonable. Um, well, as an actual, a, actual. Well, a, well yeah. yeah, actual reasonable. Um, yeah. As, a, as a pre-estimate of what sure, it may uh, be. R- yeah. r- no, I, I catch yeah. your drift. So yeah. it might be actual if you follow through with it, but yeah. No, uh, yeah, a forecast at that point in the discussion. Now, what the app does... Uh, it causes, well, what I'm hoping generally in New Zealand is not actually for people to do cost calculations when they, you know, win, right? Which you might only do, I mean, if, if you're very successful doing an actual costs award, I mean, at most, you know, five or six times a year, possi- possibly more, I'm talking about for an individual, is for clients to actually, clients to require lawyers when they're aware of this functionality to say, please do an exact calculation of a 2B, say, analysis. modelled several different ways, right? Two-day hearing, three-day hearing, one interlocutory, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, when I say modelling, it's a fancy way of just doing just different different cost schedules and compare that to your forecast actual costs and come up with a specific cash figure. Now, I guarantee you, I mean, if this was um, a uh, radio show, right, I would invite people to call in right now and say, contradict me, with specific examples, all right. Now that phone would be silent if people were being truthful. Well, people people could send you emails. You you'll, you'll go back to your chambers. <laughs> they'll, 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 your inbox will have a thousand emails on it. <laughs> all all correspondences to be sent to Chris Patterson. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but seriously, people will have had discussions like that. I'm sure. And and indeed, I mean, yeah, I try to where appropriate. Not all cases fit that precise claimant civil claim. You know goes to the conclusion of trial model. I mean, you might have an injunction, you might have a caveat application, you might have a restraining order where the strategic objectives are different and you basically, you have won when you've got that injunction or you kind of lapse that caveat. But, but it is, as you say, modelling, it's kind of thinking of, of realistic, likely scenarios on the right. information that the lawyer has at that point right, in time right. they're running it. And being, and here's the kicker, mate, yeah. it's being specific. Yeah. It's being specific. So I'm hoping in time, the the... A lot of people are using the app. It's completely anonymized, so we, it sits on your computer basically when you use it on your browser. No, we don't see it. I don't have any choice about being sent by the payment services provider a list of those transactional records when, like Chris Patterson. Well, I, well, I ran one this morning, oh, so right, it'll, it'll come up. Good so, man. Yeah, so it yeah, says so Chris spent Patterson some money this morning with you. <laughs> princely sum of four dollars ninety nine, including GST. Oh, I thought that was actually quite fair. <laughs> please, please to hear it, and that that will be the end of my touting. But yeah. I mean that that information sits 
you know, in, in my records. And I, I couldn't I couldn't reject that if I tried, right? So the funder point there is completely anonymous. It's completely private. In fact, the way it works technically compels that anyway. But I just want to make sure that people understand that it's in the terms of service as well. Okay, so so they get they get on the app. A lawyer or maybe a lay person who's thinking about engaging a lawyer, and they, they go through and they, they tick all the different scenario boxes um, and then the app generates a report. That's that, right. Yeah, okay. That's and the gist of it. Yeah. Easy, and just simple. And the punch point is at, at the bottom of the report's the total, total of what you could expect you may be awarded mm-hmm. if the matter uh, played out under that scenario or that modelling. Yeah, that's right. So if, if we're... Um thinking about modelling rather than the actual case that you've just done, because what we've just been talking about, yep. it, it is exactly that. And again, it gives you something specific. For anyone who's using it, you can kind of mess around with the checkboxes, like uh, one interlocutory hearing five days. There's a box there if you put in disbursements. We're actually working on a new version, so that's kind of you can take specific disbursements as well. There's a little drop-down menu right now that gives you that drops down to the most common amounts like a filing fee for a statement of claim in the high court and filing fee for an interlock, etc. And that that is a very useful datum, right, for that kind of discussion, the kind of discussion I want to see occur more often where that would give you a precise amount for, for a forecast uh, award if you were successful or likewise, of course, the, you know, the inverse of that um, if you were unsuccessful as a defendant kind of other things equal. Now, um, g- given how straightforward, and I'm not trying to sell your app no, here, but sure. given how straightforward and easy it is to use, mm. um, uh, I mean, t- you know, to be fair, I've had a little bit of experience with dealing with costs, but I found it super easy to great. navigate through and Pleased out came it. the schedule um, mm. with the outcome, which was great to be able to, nice, to give yeah. that to a, to a client. Um, we still seem to have uh, here in New Zealand a lot of disputes about costs. And yeah, in any some some months, um, I think I read a capital letter the other day. It yeah. sort of indicated that uh, the month of uh, May was a real boomer, and there was something uh, like the High Court had produced somewhere around. I think it might have been twenty-seven different costs awards. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that's unfortunate. So I, I think there's something at issue in the profession there, and this is something that litigation need to remind themselves. And I'm going to dispense the lesson now for anyone who's listening. That in litigation, by definition, where there's a winner and loser, after hearing argumentation, one argument has been accepted. Logically, the converse of that position has been rejected, right? It is not the case that your opponent has been unreasonable. In other words, has done something that warrants a departure from those scale rules just because you have won. When the lawyers are very close to the arguments, and closer than any judge will be, right, and someone has contended something that they know does not follow, right? That will not be impressed upon any other person except just the fact of failure. The standard for conduct being unreasonable, vexatious, frivolous, abusive process, however you want to put it, to want a departure from the rule it is really quite narrow, right? Uh, and judges keep emphasising this and, and lawyers keep, pushing back on it and saying, well, this case is the exceptional case. And when you read those decisions, not decisions like that, right, what you realise is that you have some kind of conduct that borges on egregious, 
And the judge basically, by fiat, what I mean is kind of not in a particularly reasoned way, says, this is bad, but it's not that bad. It's 2B. And I say 2B as being the most common costs category on the scale that you mentioned. On the other hand, judges could be more consistent about basically giving effect to and enforcing uh, call-to-bank offers, right? Or Part 35, as you call them, in, in England. And just to remind your listeners... Um, it's weird. Rule 14.10. Yeah. And <laughs> Thank you, Chris. You're, you're on top of the rules. You might second you to 2B so you yeah. can create the new schedule. Um, you make a settlement offer, right, and your your opponent might uh, might beat you at trial, but you say, well, uh, I, I offered you more in my settlement offer, right, and therefore you should pay. Or, or something close enough. Or something close enough, right, yeah. and therefore you should pay my cost, costs on a indemnity basis, in other words, all of my costs. Or, or an uplift basis. An uplift, yeah, yeah, from that point onwards. Now, in New Zealand, I haven't read any comprehensive analysis of this, but reading most of the decisions that come down the wire, the approach to that scenario, scenario is quite variable. It's by, quite by mixed. It's, it quite, it's quite. I read. I read most of the cost judgments. Yeah, right. You know, particularly when there is a when there is a call to bank offer, a, a without prejudice savers cost, just to kind of just check in to see yeah, how right. particular judges approach it, because right. there is a variation between them. Well, it, it should be definitive. I just need to correct something I got wrong. I said part 35 under the English rules, it's part yeah. 36. Yeah. I mentioned that because they have a specific regime. It's a, it's a, Their rules, like ours, are regulations. And their rules have a prescription for a call to bank offer. It's, and in England, the vernacular is developed as a, a part 36 offer. I'm doing quote marks. And when you meet that criteria, right, there shall be indemnity costs from that point subject to a residual discretion, but it's a discretion that's exercised sparingly, right? And that compels the behaviour that you want, right, which is people thinking very carefully about settlement offers and thus, you know, reduces litigation. We well, also want people making settlement offers. Yeah, right, that's, right. I mean, there's always three ways in which a dispute's going to be resolved, it's either going to be resolved because the plaintiff gives up, sure, or abandons it, abandons right. it, yep. yeah, um, or discontinues their proceedings mm. if they've issued proceedings, mm. or the parties reach a resolution, sure, or agreement. Mm. an agreement of some form, mm-hmm. yeah, or, or a resolution's handed to them by a third party, in this case, a judge, yeah, and right. sometimes that's the punishment for one or both parties being a bit unreasonable. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So there are only literally three kind of logical options open to you in a dispute. Yeah. That's, yeah. And, and really, there's so much, uh, there's so many upsides in settlements. Um, generally speaking, um, I mean, it's perception on my part that parties, whilst they may not be happy with a, a settlement, they appreciate that it's better than the alternative. Okay? Sure, and sure. therefore, they can get on with their lives. Generally, yeah. settlements happen a long time before you'd ever get a judgment out of a, out yeah, of a court. Um, and the costs are generally significantly less. Yeah, um, there's just no downside, right? But it just gives you certainty. And yeah. then, of course, judges have their hands are tied on the remedies that they can provide. Sure. You know? sure. So really encouraging settlement, um, this is a great mechanism, yeah. is using costs as a way of saying to the parties, hey, let's be reasonable about this. Yeah. Because well, one area that I often say to clients when they say about how much is this going to cost mm. Um, and great to have you calculate it, but I, but I often will say this to them, I'll say, well, there is actually a correlation 
between the level of unreasonableness of one or both the parties will dictate the amount that the costs will be. Yeah, sure. Because if you've got two parties who are acting reasonably, they'll sort it out themselves. Yeah, yeah. quite. Yeah, the, the, yeah, there's a really good point there that you make, which is um, disputes only arise and lawyers are only in, involved where the situation is unreconcilable, right? Mm. But there is then a platform for reconciliation through the legal process. But My speech to people includes things like, and it's, it's, a pro, it's a matter of setting up expectations early as well, you know, realistically and, and properly, it's things like reaching an outcome you can live with. And there's a difference between being able to live with something and being ecstatic oh, about yeah, it, exactly. right? Yeah. And we all know the magic that happens when you've got everyone in the room through negotiation, perhaps more commonly mediation, and things happen in real life, in real time. I believe once you've got enough information out there, and that takes some time, you get people into that setting, and all the, the good stuff about advocacy comes in, naturally. all the le- There's as much legal argumentation as you like. All the analytic skill comes in. The sooner people can reach that, agreed position that they can both live with, uh, the better. Now, there are some cases, of course, that don't come into that category, and maybe one party is being completely unreasonable, right? Well, there's always going to be cases that will need to be litigated, and yeah, there's just sure. no way to avoid it. Um, sure. But they're, they're really the small percentage. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And, and look, costs, I mean, when we're talking in the civil sphere, I mean, criminal sphere is different, but then even in itself, I mean, you know, get resolutions and those within the criminal jurisdiction. And sure. costs are always a big factor. You know, you talked about mediations. I mean, how often does a mediator ask the parties and say, right, how much do you each think this is going to cost? <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's a very good question for a mediator to ask. And actually, I've been in touch with the, well, some mediators to encourage them to use the app because if they have a, that vector, that topic, yeah, great. Right, good they idea. can say, require your lawyer to do an exact calculation and give your precise forecasts. Now, lawyers often uh, shirk this question and it is accurate to say that it is difficult to predict. But one does have a bank, like you and me or others, of 20 years of experience across... Plus. <laughs> across <laughs> Feeling old now. Plus. plus. Yeah, I think, I think you, you might say it's closer to 20 mumble. But um, there is a lot of experience there of, of which you can give something that's appropriately... Caveated. I mean, and, and you can give case appropriately anonymized case studies of work that you've done earlier. You know, the claims a million and the actual costs were, say, you know, 150 and the costs recovery under the rules it was 99 or just, just to give them a basic orientation, right? And that, and that, you know, that that's a discussion you could have in a, in a mediation. Oh, you could take it further. You could, uh, rather than the mediator asking the lawyers to go and do that, the mediator could. Bring yeah. out the laptop, well, put it on the on the on the projector, <laughs> yeah, and actually yeah. just um, start banging it in. Yeah. Say to the lawyers, right? Sure. Okay. I mean, uh, I mean, I guess to a large extent, it depends on what stage uh, the life cycle of the litigation mm. is when the mediation takes place. But if it's early enough, then a mediator could say to the plaintiff's lawyer, right? Well, you know, is there going to be any interlocutories on your part, and you know, etc. How many days yeah. do you think it's going to be? And ask the defendant's lawyer the same, and then bingo. Uh, outcomes a calculation of what the costs yep. could be looking at for either party, uh, which is a factor that you've got to put put into into account because then you you really have that cold hard discussion between lawyer and client of what their actual costs are going to be. Yeah, yeah. that's right. No, so, I, I just yeah. invite people to be more analytic about it to mm. to be precise if they can. Now, again, not every situation lends itself to precision, but certainly 
if one is kind of using one's memory bank of experience, you can you can be quite precise. And of course, other professions are kind of required to make forecasts, cash forecasts. It's common in business, right? Just a profit and loss, turnover. Engineers, quantity surveyors do it, right? They face all of the same challenges that we do. And actually, it's harder in business. When you're a COO and you're asked to do you know, like a financial forecast for six months. There's some dark art there, man, right? Mm. And that they have more variables and more contingencies than we have to grapple with. It's good advice is still often that it can't be predicted, but can you can give guidance and one objective reference point can be if you're going to go through these steps A to G in the preceding and you are awarded to be costs, the most common category. You an award of costs would be made of this amount where you found the winner or be made against you if you were the loser, as as the as the case may be. Yeah, and look, often um, in terms of for lawyers, is just really good practice is have these cons- discussions early on. Um, yeah, be- sure. Because it's an area that. You know, when I read, you know, some of the standards committee's determinations mm. on things, it's a, an area that comes up is that clients say, well, I was never told how much it was going to cost. Yes, and they will say that. And, of course, there will be cases where there has been that discussion and the client asserts that later and it's difficult to contradict it. A way to address that rather galling later category, right, is to be able to point to a written report where you have done that precise analysis. I I hasten to add here that I'm aware of some firms and some firms I work with that already engage in this discipline uh, and and the insurance type firms I am aware are required to and will actually rip open Excel, right? And and they have macros or whatever already. And they'll be saying costs recovery under the rules X, your actual costs be Y, probability of claim succeeding is Z, kind of do some kind of basic algebra to kind of come up with, uh, you know, a numerical figure. And also with the larger firms as well. Like, I mean, um, they can be expected already, in my experience, to be carrying out this kind of analysis. But for all the lone wolves out there, like me, all of the civil barristers and some of the smaller operations, right, who don't necessarily have an IT guy who's created a beautiful Excel spreadsheet to work that all out for you, right, uh, the, the app is available, so you can have that kind of discussion. Well, one former uh, very senior insurance lawyer, of course, is now our Chief Justice of our hmm. Supreme Court, sure. Chief Justice Helen Wynne Kelman. Now, back in 2014, at my old law school of Otago, she spoke at the, that year's Ethel Benjamin address, hmm. and she raised costs as being one of the main factors as a, as a barrier to access to justice. I mean, she also mentioned delay and lack of representation. I mean, there were two other factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've spent a bit of time talking about costs because costs mm. are, for some people, just eye-watering and beyond the realm of, of, of many New Zealanders. And really being able to get access to a court is a, is a right that every New Zealander should be able to have. It absolutely is. But tell me about your book and, and how yes. perhaps the book might go some way towards... Sure doing, you know, like one small incremental step towards solving a sure. problem that our Chief Justice, well, she was in Court of Appeal and High Court Judge back yes. then, but th- that she was really putting the, the signal out to the profession, and I'm not just saying lawyers, but, the, you know, the wider profession to try and solve what is becoming quite a crisis. 
It is a crisis, and I, I can relish the opportunity to talk about that. Firstly, um, this the content of the book is written by a great guy, uh, a very caring, compassionate, hardworking man called Martin Dillon, who's a barrister based in Hamilton. I'll give five-second backstory. On Martin's website, basically all of this content, when it, not in the form that's edited in the book, is there. I came across it, and he had kind of H- HTML uh, environment, right, where you'd click on a topic and basically get some of the chapter of the book. So I approached Martin and said, why don't we put this into like a, a conventional book? I was really, very relieved that he got on board with that. Together we worked for a long time to kind of knock that into shape, a lot more work than we both thought, but we got there in the end. It's definitely Martin's baby as, as the author, but it's my great privilege to kind of midwife that, as it were, as, as a publisher. And also I'm just trying to promote it just as much as I can, or we both are, because we think it's very valuable. Now, in terms of what our Chief Justice said, good starting point. It is one thing to identify the issues, right? That's necessary. It's probably the easy part. Well, this is critical for um, for the rule of law. I mean, Justice Costs um, more recently said that the rule of law depends on two things. Accessibility to the institutions of justice and accountability of one citizen to another, the rights that have been infringed. Unsustainable litigation costs impair both, and thereby the rule of law. Well, sure, and I, for me, that that is very important, Chris, and that, uh, it, I mean, kind of transcendentally important. The rule of law is one of the invisible cornerstones to our society, and it's why we are, amongst other kind of good reasons, including liberal democracy and another key ancient values, right? Why we are a thousand x better than many other people who are less fortunate right now. Oh, God, we could, be, we could be in Kabul at the moment. Oh, well, yeah, I don't even, gosh, yeah, my heart is going out to those people right now. Well, what a disaster. Yeah, but certainly a discussion for another time. We wouldn't be wanted to be subjected to, to no, aerial law. No, well, you know, we, we can thank everyone who's come before us for the rule of law that we enjoy. Uh, it is one thing to identify those issues, and it's one, I don't say this disrespectfully, but it's basically the same thing to identify those issues in a speech. Now, that has some utility, and that is appreciated. Uh, others would say words are wind, right? And the only thing that matters in the end is action. Oh, I agree now, with you. That, that yeah. speech was delivered, and this is absolutely no disrespect to our Chief Justice at all. And like I said, appreciate that someone delivering that message. Uh, things are certainly no further ahead seven years ago. And what I hear around the traps, and I'm just keeping this very general, is uh, a lot of a lot of talk and not a lot of action. Now, New Zealand, shamefully, does not have a tradition of pro bono work. And there's a, a, a big problem there uh, that in New Zealand, community work and pro bono work are conflated. Uh, community work, of which you do some, and Chris, I know, acknowledge also you do pro bono work, both, right? Uh, I have, have done, I do try and maintain 10% pro bono. I wouldn't say I do any community work particularly. That's where I put my focus. Firms in New Zealand um, will are kind of very big on their community work and say that and call that pro bono. And now this is not just terminological, right? And here's the kicker: if you're in New York even the blue, most blue-blooded firm there, right, 
will do both. They will do their community work for the local basketball for indigent people in the Bronx or whatever, right? They'll fund that, maybe go down, ref a game. And also, they will be acting for that difficult, crazy, poor, dishonest, indigent guy who's facing a charge for something disgusting, right? Because those are actually the people who need help. I am aware of firms in New Zealand who, who do that, and, and they don't go around talking about it. And also the, also the firms that kind of sometimes boycott a lot of these you know, competitions for greatest firm on the lower quadrant of the fifth floor of Shortland Street or, or whatever. That's the first issue. The, the second problem is just when we're attempting to be specific about it, their first point is cultural. The second point is the recognised deficiency between civil legal aid, which for all intents and purposes is actually non-existent, right? Well, I mean, the criteria to be eligible uh, means that it's it's a very small percentage of the population right. that, that are eligible, and then there's probably a slightly larger percentage who can actually afford, I'll, I'll call it large-scale civil litigation, and then you've got the majority of the country who just can't at all. Right. Yeah. So what you've identified there, mate, just to fill in the middle bit, is the group of people between those two poles. Civil legal aid uh, is a stupid scheme, and it's badly run. And it's heartbreaking, mate, because I'm aware that there was some kind of watershed review of it last, well, last year, yeah, the, um, and it didn't result in any change at all. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just say this, and I, I was I was very disappointed. Civil legal, legal aid, well, legal aid, both criminal and civils, managed and administered by the Ministry of Justice. Mm-hmm. Okay? So the ministry uh, decided that they would hold a session where they would invite people, stakeholders, to attend and talk about the system and you know what could be done to improve it. So I attended this because I thought it was important. And there was one other barrister there mm-hmm. and another lawyer, and that was the entire legal profession represented. <laughs> right. Because the reality is, for most of the profession, legal aid is, is irrelevant to them. It's just um, non-existent. And, yeah, it's, it, it really is. I mean, one thing that I've always found very frustrating is trying to find a legal aid lawyer for a client. There's, um, there's no roster. There's no record. Well, there's well, no the, easy record. Well, there's no easy record. For, for um, a common person. And, and actually, we, if, we could, if we could take this offline, because I've got an idea. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a clearinghouse idea. And okay. I've raised this with, a, with the Auckland Community Law Centre okay. and, and a few others, because I think the, the, the whole problem with legal aid, well, not the whole problem, there's so many problems, mm. but one of them is an administration aspect. Like, I, I look at my standard hourly rate, which is 600 plus GST, mm. but my legal aid rate, um, which is the highest rate, mm. is 155 inclusive. Yeah, so right. there's a significant donation yeah. that I uh, I give when I'm doing legal aid work, and, and, and I never begrudge it. But what I do begrudge is the amount of administration that's involved. Yeah. And uh, there's no shortcutting a large part of it because of the way it's structured. But these are all systemic Problems, um, and and we don't we don't have time to go into no. it in this in this podcast. I agree. But <laughs> but 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 it, it is a problem. I did write a, a, a short piece that was published in Law Talk maybe five or six years ago. Maybe sure. it was longer, and, and I did want to raise in that that there are th- there were three um, which I thought were pretty fairly quickly easy resolutions that would improve access to justice, particularly around cost. 
One area that I picked up was relationship property. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got a relationship property dispute, and we'll just take children out of the equation so that there isn't any uh, underlying weaponisation of kids or anything in there, but you've got two civil partners, for example, they've been in a 20-year relationship, and the main asset, uh, other than the house, is the family business. Mm -hmm. Okay, Okay, If one of the partners, or both of them, don't have any money, and they need a lawyer to, to help them out, then that lawyer can't actually offer to assist them on a contingency basis because we have a prohibition against any mm. matters that are before the family court because it would uh, be a family court matter yeah. uh, against that. But if they were just yeah. shareholders, yeah, okay, right, right. then you could. So that, yeah. that was one area I okay. thought. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, look, the other aspect is actually just the, this, this prohibition on contingency work. So I've mm. always had a bit mm. of a contingency book. I've downsized it over the years because sure. I've found... Mm. That our courts don't support it. Okay, in fact, they yeah, look quite harsh. You. They look quite harshly on. Yeah. Can, but but often, offering contingency is a way yeah. of giving access to justice to parties, sure. particularly with cases that have merit. Sure. Um, but of course, you know we're constrained by charging what they call a reasonable fee, and there's no real baseline about how much you can factor in for risk. So we're not like the American system where you could say. I'm going to charge a third of the a third mm. of the, the the net proceeds, mm. and, and I think that's something that needs discussion. Sure. And, and look, one other area which I I feel very strongly about is um, at the moment the, the High Court Rules Committee is working through and mm. asking I'm for aware. submissions I'm and etc. Yeah. Well, well, there's no, con- there's actually no consumer representative on that rules committee. I mean, it's a, it, it, it is populated mm. by High Court judges mm. at, a, at a minimum and. Uh, Crown law, yeah, yeah etc. Et mm-hmm. But the actual users, that is, the, the mm. people who are the end yeah. users, aren't represented. That's um, an interesting point. And so you get this cultural issue, of, in my mind, of this real narrow focus of uh, a bunch of former lawyers who have been made judges all sitting around going, How do we make access uh, to justice mm. better in New Zealand without actually having someone around the table who's a user of the system? Yeah, it's an interesting point. Yeah, you should you should raise that with them. Uh, the, the only thought that springs to my mind there on that particular point is that the Rules Committee is largely historically engaged in a technical exercise, which is just making the rules work, which <laughs> is quite a lot of work in itself. And obviously we all appreciate the kind of unpaid labour that those guys put in. Could you raise an interesting idea? Mm. Anyway, but look, um, going back to your book, because I mean, mm. presumably, I mean, uh, I, I mean, you, you've got your book here. I it's, have. A, it's a fantastic. You're, you're handling fanta- it right I now. I know. I am. It's three hundred and fifty-five pages of goodness. Well, it is, and look, um, it, it's got a large aspect of explaining the rules and, sure. and decoding that. So, yeah, so tell us to. about that. Yeah. Well, um, in our dis- the discussion we've just had, Chris, we've identified this massive you know, lacuna or gap between people who are eligible for, for eligible for civil legal aid and those who can afford you and me when we're not doing it pro bono, right? Mm. And that is a huge number of people. A district court judges report anecdotally, and I've heard them say it, that around half of litigants in the civil caseload right now are unrepresented. And this is this is heartbreaking for them because they end up doing what we call hand-holding. Well, this, crea- this creates a false economy, doesn't it? Oh, t- well, an economist you know, would tell you that. I mean, yeah, you take sure. a district court judge, you know, they're being paid uh, circa 350 per annum, sure. high court judge, you know, 450, mm-hmm. and there's only so many hours in the day, sure. and they're doing all this hand-holding rather than... Right. 
paying a, a, a lawyer to, to, to do that, take an, undertake that role well, instead. Having a role, yeah, a lawyer undertake that role, as you say. And yeah, so dreadfully uh, inefficient and undesirable for a number of reasons. Um, judges only have so much mental energy, right? Some of which they want to devote to writing uh, reserved decisions. They don't have so much emotional energy contending with someone whose feelings are running high and perhaps is not listening or is a bit anxious and so on. And presumably if they wanted clients, they'd never have taken the appointment <laughs> to, to yeah. the bench. Yeah, so <laughs> I, uh, part, part of my practice, uh, uh, and which is work I really enjoy, is, is in the district court. I'm frequently uh, up there in Albert Street in Auckland before the judges there who are all commendably smart and hardworking and doing their best, which is very much appreciated. And this aspect of it, I'm aware, um, it could just broadly, I'm not saying any particular individual has reported this to me, but this is something they contend with. The book, uh, Martin's work, uh, is intended to uh, be a practical step or a tool to help address that situation. The approach that's been taken in England uh, by the government is to recognise that lay litigants are here to stay, right? Well, and some some people actually who could afford a lawyer just choose not oh, to because well, they think they can run the argument yes, better than true, a lawyer. True, true, uh, and 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 that is their that is their right. Although they don't, you know, if if, if they have disclaimed help, then the po- people are probably not inclined to offer it to them. For the for the most of the folk I mentioned in that kind of middle category who would retain the lawyer if they could. Uh, need some kind of guidance, right? And, and in England, uh, if you kind of browse through the kind of the equivalent um, kind of ministry information, there's now copious guidance. And they have basically resigned themselves to the fact that for in systemic reasons, the legal profession cannot address the needs of those people. Most lawyers cannot operate a business that makes that profitable to an appropriate extent to have a certain amount of their practice help those people, right? So well, we, we can't. I mean, I uh, I think in one year, uh, probably 20% of my work might have been legal aid or pro bono, and it, it just about economically killed me. Yeah, right. Well, so there you go. And that, as an econ, right, as a notional economic actor, an economist would say, is whether that's right or wrong, realistically, a notional you or a whole society of notional use are not going to continue doing that. So you do that one year, naturally the resolution you make is that, well, I'm, I'm not going to let that happen again. That involves no moral judgment. It's just unlikely that you would keep doing that, right? And that's the true insight there is that's not, people will not regard that as sustainable. So you have a systemic issue. It's been addressed. Uh, the, there's an attempt to address it in England through copious ministry-type information and guidance. Well, well, they've done a number of inquiries into mm. access to justice. And, sure. and so the Australians, the Productivity Commission, and this is going back about eight years ago, did a, did a great piece of uh, research and produced a great report. Oh, great, yeah, but great. Yeah. So your book is, mm-hmm. is, is really, how, if I hear you right, you're helping uh, someone who, who sits in that large group there, not eligible for legal aid and can't afford a lawyer and just needs a little bit of guidance on how to navigate the nuances of civil litigation in New Zealand. Yeah, that's right. So Martin's book, I'm just looking at the... Um the kind of the uh, contents pages here, the first chapter is navigating civil litigation, an overview, claiming legal costs, claiming interest, and then it, it's commendably detailed. And again, it's, it's n- not my work, right? Mm. It's Martin's work. Interest in the High Court and the Employment Relations Authority, the Motor Vehicle Disputes 
tribunal, the tenancy tribunal, statutory demands, a, a very detailed analysis of civil litigation costs, that first part of our discussion. And then Martin has actually produced like tables where he's actually modelled different outcomes of what you uh, might expect. Alternatives to litigation, specifics of high court procedure, the statement of claim, service of proceedings, default judgment, and and it goes on. It's and a that, usable health, health, self-help book. Yeah, it is. And, and look, Martin, it's based on the material from his website that we kind of cribbed together and edited to some extent. It's, uh, it, it's good writing, right? It, it's good material. Um, Martin's not like, a, he's a full-time lawyer. He's not a full-time writer, right? It's just something he has done. Um, it's kind of good enough. I actually think it's very good, but at a minimum, it's kind of like good enough. It's certainly good enough for like non, non-lawyer people. I think some lawyers would kind of read through it and, uh, can not be completely at home with it, but of course they're not the intended audience, right? We keep it pretty simple. Um, Great resource to have available at like public libraries, for example, well, as yeah, well. Yeah, we're getting know? into yeah. that, and uh, I've got to just start a discussion with the CAB, the Citizens Advice Bureau. I intend to talk to community law. I am actually yet to investigate how libraries work, but we'll certainly be making it available to them in accordance with their usual licensing regime. Um, and on, online, I'm not saying this to tout the book, but just as a technical matter, that it's nine ninety nine inclusive of GST. That's a bargain. Yeah, well, and yeah. I think that's in US dollars. Not that matters yeah. very much. And if you compare it to a charge-out rate of, the, the one, to use the one you mentioned, 600, or even half that, 300, I mean, it's just, compared to a lawyer, it's, it's like nothing, you know. Well, I mean, I just had a thought. I mean, I wonder if this is a good resource um, for the appropriate case for a, a lawyer who's who's got a client who's who's quite oh, vested sure. and wants to understand the process better. Where a lawyer could yeah. actually give the yeah. client and well, say, right. "Look, while I'm your lawyer and I'm going to be doing all this work, and I'm happy to explain it all to you, here's a book, yeah, civil sure. litigation for the non-lawyer. Sure. If you want to use your time rather than using my time to explain mm. large parts of it." Have a flick through this book. Oh, well, I, I would love for people to do that. I mean, yeah. the vision we have for it, I mean, this is not going to make anyone a billionaire, right? right. It, it's priced to be affordable. And in terms of kind of the overall costs and production costs that go in, including for the paperback run, you know, the, it's, I'm not going to be buying a house on kind of billionaire um, mile or anything like that. Well, um, well, well, no, but this is, this is in a way, Steve, this is a bit like this podcast. These are passion projects. Sure, these sure. are these are things Absolutely. you do because you want to give something back to yeah. the community. Certainly, and, and certainly that's true of Martin and and mm. myself. So as the writer, he's, you know, I mean that this is kind of his thing. It's one of his values, right? It's the kind of person he is, and uh, I am kind of supporting him in that endeavor. I think that's great that you're doing that. I yeah, mean, we well, we, sure. we need we need this sort of information sure. accessible because I mean it's always been a hallmark of the legal profession is. Uh, that it's only the lawyers that hold the information uh, sure. on how everything works. The magic uh, knowledge. The magic knowledge, yeah. like some sort of cult, <laughs> yeah. you know. Or elves. Of elves, yeah, yeah, yeah. possibly. Um, hey, look, I just thought I'd share something else with you, because I, I, I just thought of it then. I was going back to that little piece that I wrote many years ago about changes, mm-hmm. easy changes that could be made that would make uh, access to justice possibly help be a small step in the right direction. And one was, and you'll be interested in this because it, relates to costs and it relates to civil legal aid. Mm-hmm. So under the, the costs regime, as you're aware, a successful party, let's just say it's a plaintiff, okay, can only recover their actual costs. Sure, yeah. sure. Okay, and that makes sense. Of course. 
Uh, but you do get this kind of perverse scenario where you've got a plaintiff who's got a meritorious claim, mm. okay, and they try to settle their meritorious claim, but the defendant is going, well, no, look, I, I, I'm not willing to be reasonable, okay. okay. And what I also know is that if we go all the way to trial, because you've got a legal aid lawyer, ah, right. okay, the worst outcome for me, okay, other than a, a judgment um, as such, but from a cost perspective, is I'm only going to have to pay the amount that you've been granted in legal aid, which I know will be a fraction mm. of what costs would otherwise be. So it kind of acts in some ways as a perverse disincentive oh, sure, to sure. settle. Now, there is under the Legal Services Act an ability for a legal aid lawyer to write to the commissioner and say, I would like to charge this legal aid client over and above the grant. Okay? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, but you've got to get the approval of the okay. commissioner. Yeah, now, I, I've tried this twice unsuccessfully and <laughs> been quite disappointed when I've um, written to the commissioner and I've said... I want to charge my client at my normal commercial rates over and above the grant, but I'll only do that if my client is successful at trial. Yeah, that that holds together analytically. And is awarded costs. Yes, sure. On that. Follow that. But I'll cap my costs at whatever the the costs award is. That's analytically perfect. I mean, in a mathematical sense, that... Well, yeah. There's a complete equilibrium, right? Because the liabil- there's a liability, but it only accrues if they're successful. Well, correct, but also yeah. you, you're capping it out at mm. what the actual award costs would otherwise Which be. Which is necessary, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. because, uh, I mean, the, the short point is the person who ends up paying it is the unsuccessful defendant. Um, so, well, I sort of interrupt you, mate, but I'm just fascinated. And I wouldn't usually interrupt you, but I've got a no. No, like, interrupt what, why, away. Why, why, <laughs> why on earth? Would they say no to that? Because there is no, when you think about it, just in terms of maths. It just makes logical sense. Did they give a reason? If I recall rightly, and as I say, I was disappointed, it was was just declined. And, you know, mainly because I think it goes against the... That, that narrow concept of, mm. well, legally aided clients shouldn't be charged. That, you know, yeah, that's I mean, but when you develop that, so I'm just really excited by what you said. So I've done a pro bono case that went to the Court of Appeal on a leave application and my guy was successful in kind of rebuffing that leave. And I explicitly said, you know, in a costs memo or whatever, that I'm doing it for free except that a litigation uh, liability for costs accrues at the time there is a successful costs award. I need to say that first to kind of trigger that thinking. The High Court judge, interestingly, didn't accept that, uh, but it didn't really get much attention, so that's not really on him so much. But when the Court of Appeal gave it a little more attention because I put more attention on it, they said, well, of course that checks out because so long as it's not more than the award, the essential logic is you can get up to your um, in entitlement under the costs rules. Now, in the situation you describe, it's exactly the same, except that the cap is what you are charging, right? Now, so long as the client is not recovering any more than he's liable to pay, from the point of view of the legal services agency, it's just not cogent to deny that well if, if I mean if they did say no that I mean that's just that's 
un- that's wholly well, unreasonable. Well, 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 it is because what it what it means is is that not only when I'm acting for a plaintiff with a meritorious case, not only am I subsidising mm. their access to justice, yeah. but I'm actually subsidising the defendant's ability to be able to yeah. defend it, yeah. because the defendant knows. Well, I'm getting a. If I get a cost award against me, it's going to be a fraction yeah. of what it would have been. Yeah. Um, but for the fact that it was a legally aided um, yeah. plaintiff. Sure. Look, I'll share another little antidote while we're on Go it, um, which which cost me about a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it was a very simple mistake. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess back in the day when I when I accepted this brief, I didn't really kind of think it fully through. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was I, you know, I had a, a plaintiff come to me with a, a really good case and a, a contractual right to indemnity costs, mm-hmm. but didn't have any money. Okay. Okay. So what I said uh, mm. to the agreement I had with the client was, okay, well, I'll do this on a contingency. And mm-hmm. as part of my standard, yeah. I will send you a yeah. fee note, as yeah. I normally do. As, as a record. As a record yeah. of yeah. what my fee is. Yeah. Okay. And if it's successful, I'll charge a small percentage uplift. Mm-hmm. As a premium for the risk, and the mm-hmm. fact that oh, you know I'm I've in mm. that case I had seven years of litigation of carrying it. Mm. It's quite a it was quite a mm. chunky piece. The um, the defendant knew that um, the plaintiff was under resourced and thought they could mm. burn the plaintiff off. Mm-hmm. Um, the defendant went through uh, well they had Chapman trip at one point, but in another large litigation law firm. But they went through three QCs. But what the point was was that because I was charging a percentage uplift. When it came to dealing with indemnity costs, uh, the High Court went, well, it wouldn't have been in the party's contemplation when they agreed to indemnity costs that, you know, one of the parties would have a lawyer acting on contingency and therefore you can only charge what your commercial rates were. And that oh, was that was right. the logic they applied. Now, the mistake I made okay. was what I should have done yeah. is... Defendant's QC was charging eleven hundred yeah. an hour. I was only charging, I think, back then hourly rate was lower. Mm-hmm. I think five fifty. Very reasonable. I should have just upped my hourly rate. <laughs> yeah, right. I should have just made it uh, eleven hundred an hour, like the QC right. that was there. Right, that still might have <laughs> been open to challenge, but there'd been less of a challenge. Yeah. Oh well, maybe yeah. made it a little bit less, maybe nine hundred yeah. an hour. But yeah. it, but it, it, you get this crazy logic that gets applied where. It defeats, really, lawyers trying to give clients representation because the client wants it and they can't afford it. Uh, So you come up with these ways to make it work and then you have the high court jump in with some archaic views of going, oh, contingency seems, you know, an evil thing. We don't want to encourage lawyers Mm. to be doing contingency. So they say, no, we're not going to encourage it. I think courts, sorry, couldn't make any comment on that particular no, case. No, 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 I don't expect you to. As you've described it, yeah. I, would, I kind of understand your feelings about it. Um, oh, does that sound bitter? <laughs> no, not at all. I, I think it was I've honest. totally accepted the outcome no, of that. You know, and you just move on. And, you and know. Your, yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of honest recollection yeah. uh, and a kind of reasonable analysis based on what you've yeah. said. I mean, there is so much to improve on in New Zealand civil litigation practice, right? And of the constellation of things that were mentioned, yeah, a completely new one, is snobbery towards uh, lawyers, and I'm not describing the case you've just done, but other lawyers doing it a little more on a wing and a prayer basis, being polite, and that could be put less politely about kind of the lawyers involved. Now, if you're going to have a dysfunctional legal aid system and costs rules that prevent percentage-type uplift, right, and scale costs that are in fact 
empirically about a third of actual costs, you need to leave some room for certain kinds of folks to scurry around, right, and patch something together for the clients that who you hope are advised well enough to basically give it a go, right? And people operating in that space actually need to be given some fucking latitude. Oh, right? look, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And, I and mean, that, you, that, you, sorry yeah. to interrupt you. I'll just no, finish no, yeah, that thought, yeah. which is, I'm not talking about your case in particular, no. but if... if, if generally. If, just right. generally. You, yeah. you know, that there's, I, it's, just, it's a snobbery, right? Mm. And holding, it's just an inconsistency. If it's, as I've described, the civil legal aid is dysfunctional and lawyers are unaffordable, then it just sticks in the throat that there's also snobbery about people who are just trying to, uh, operating fast and loose, but not unethically, just to make it work. work because yep. no one else is offering. So the people who pass judgment on that, so where, where is your pro bono profile? Mm. How much work do you do at a discounted rate? And at the, at the big firms, of whom I'm a very big fan, and I'm pointing finger at no one in particular, the financial pressures are such that they literally are incapable of doing pro bono work as I have defined it. Now, anyone listening to this might later object that they do do pro bono work by, I say, fallaciously, including community work, right? But pro bono work is acting for that difficult person. You open a file, whereas your bill would have been 10 grand, other things equal, right? It is zero. Bit of a digression there, sorry, but the people who pass judgment are not are, uh, are not offering an alternative. Okay. Well, well, look. Sometimes the people who pass judgment are actually judges themselves because they've got this expectation that you, as a lawyer, are going to be able to process your matters at at a high standard without actually keeping in mind that actually you're not being paid. You're working extremely long hours. And you're up against an opponent who's incredibly well resourced, and and I accept the fact that our litigation model doesn't provide for equality of arms. I, I'm not suggesting otherwise, but there isn't a lot of leeway given, even by some members in my experience of mm. the bench, to the fact that you're just trying to do your best with what you've got, <laughs> and and and, and, sure. and to end up being criticised for it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I had a matter recently where my client got whacked with. Um, I just thought was a little bit on the punitive mm-hmm. side, where the judge went, ah, oh, going to award costs for second counsel. Mm-hmm. There's no way it was a second counsel matter, okay. but it was just really a, just a, without going, well, actually, you know, the other, the defendants got a, got a QC and, and, and well-resourced, and here's mm-hmm. the plaintiff who has, has been completely hamstrung, yes. um, and you're just trying to get through. Yeah, yeah I, I kind of agree with your essential point that uh, any decision maker in any forum would be well advised to remember uh, the inherent difficulties of legal practice when you're in the trenches and on this side of the bench. There, there are ways around that. Like, for example, in, in England, in the serious criminal jurisdiction, which is, I mean, operates in quite a different way in terms of how the lawyering works, but to pick one thing out, if the Crown has a QC, the accused is automatically gets a QC, right, and 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 vice versa. So they do have some rules providing for equality of arms, at least in that case, totally yeah. indictable crime, murder, and 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 equivalent. Or I mean, that's my approximate understanding of it anyway. 
search the essential principle is, as I've described it. I'm not quite sure how broadly it applies. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, this or well, you've raised actually a, an important point is uh, with all the reforms to criminal legal aid in the last uh, 15, 20 years. You know, the ability for the criminal defence bar to be able to encourage the younger generation lawyers mm, sure. to come in and join and, and to stay in there for 25 years plus yeah. and, and become a experienced, mm. skillful mm. defence litigator is really difficult. And, and, that's, and that, that raises issues about representation. And rule of law. And rule of, yeah, law. Um, rule of law. You know, and of course, you know, we go to the other point and we look at our, our judges, um, particularly at the High Court, and you can see, a, you know, that classic progression in their career is generally large law firm mm-hmm. into the one of the biggest set of chambers. You mentioned two of them. They mm-hmm. take silk and then they're appointed a uh, appointed a judge. They've described some of them accurately. Yeah. Not, um, not all of them. Not all of them. Yeah. No, I'm just saying yeah. it's a, it's a generalisation. Yeah. It is it is a rare case when you find uh, particularly a provincial generalist mm. who has spent most of their career at, you know, dealing at, at a community level, yeah. um, finding their way up onto our higher benches. Yeah, um, true, and true. And then that what that means is that the experience that you've got with the the judges that are that mm. are generally there, their worldview is shaped by their experiences. Yeah, quite right. Mm. Well, they they're all well advised. Just to remember that being a lawyer is quite quite hard. Yeah, and and it, and it isn't impossible basically across eighteen twenty four month period to get it exactly right. And litigation is lumpy and difficult. And how things come out at trial is always different to how it appears initially in a in a facty disputed kind of case well circumstances right. change yeah you circumstances know, and change. they can change in the middle of a trial yeah and they change at any at, at, at any time and, and the litigator's job is to marshal that process be on top of that phenomenon the ability to things for things to change right not to present a perfect case and the perfect case doesn't exist no in my opinion I mean no. an easy undefended one occasionally. But oh, you got the classic <laughs> where, the, where where your witness doesn't come up to brief. You know, yeah, it happens, right? And 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 of course, as much preparation as you can do, sometimes you just can't foresee that they're going to come out and say, "I've just remembered something." Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I dare say, ten years ago, I actually like the modern judicial reasoning we're getting, particularly in the high court, it was super analytic, probably more focused on the pleadings than it was uh, earlier. I kind of promoter of that kind of approach also when i think of judges when i was starting out 20 years ago their pleadings were more of a guide yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know and uh they said they remembered that they sit as a court of justice right to arrive at a fair outcome all things considered and, and maybe you know there's kind of a little more um looseness that translated into uh, you know kind of mental flexibility that I think is um has its place yes uh, I- I- anyway and that um but I mean both approaches have their place and ideally it's somewhere in the middle provided by the ministry of decisions, <laughs> ministry of decisions. <laughs> no no look that's unfair look uh, you know we, we we are very lucky and you did touch on that before we, we we're fortunate we live in a country that's got a good justice system oh, yeah, it is, yeah. and by comparison yeah, yeah by exactly. comparison and and look there's always room for improvement and sure. look you're doing your bit Steve um, to, right? absolutely two B's mm. 
great app, um, simplifies what is otherwise a rather difficult task for the average person. And the book which you've uh, made a contribution in editing-wise, Civil Litigation for Non-Lawyers by Martin Dillon. Fantastic read. Steve Keel, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, uh, mate. I've really enjoyed our discussion, actually, and I'm just going to do a five-second tout for anyone who's listening. Um, The 2Bs app can probably be found on Google just by Googling 2Bs. That will also bring up a bunch of B stuff. It's right. really interesting. There are many other businesses around the world called 2Bs. So you, you get your costs done, calculated, and then you could possibly get a bit of honey as well. Yeah, yeah there's, there's always <laughs> no, things go down a little more smoothly, always a little bit of honey. Um, Sweeten things up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but um, it, it's 2-Bs.legal is the domain name if it's needed. And the website for the book is uh, civillitigationfornon-lawyers.com. Basically, if you go into Amazon and, in a, as a search term, enter civil litigation for non-lawyers will come up. And also, if you go into Google, I'm fairly sure if you just put in the words civil litigation for non-lawyers, that should um, come up. The website uh, permits uh, a hard copy book to be ordered, which is provided here in New Zealand. Otherwise, there's a link in Amazon. We can either get the ebook uh, immediately onto your Kindle it's, it's an Amazon bespoke Kindle product, or you can have the um, Amazon basically because they are godlike and their technology can print on demand unbelievably. So if you want to order the hard copy through Amazon, uh, they will print that for you and send it to you. And it uh, it looks like it looks like right. this. I'm just whizzing through the pages at the mic. Great, Steve. Hey, great resource to help unlock some of the mystery uh, around uh, civil litigation for lawyers. Fantastic. Thanks, mate. Yeah, really Thank enjoyed you. the opportunity. It's been great having you on. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application, and the future of the law here down under.